Lord this morning. Let's give our praise to the Lord. Let's do a shout of praise in this place today. God is in this place. Last week, Bethany and I kind of felt the same word in our, our hearts, and I kind of shared a little bit, but the word was breakthrough, that God wants to break through in the atmosphere. He wants to break through, wants to let his spirit break through in our lives. And you know, as we're here in worship today, I can feel two things happening. One of them is a resistance to keep us apathetic and keep us calm and keep us contained and keep us small in our praise and small in our worship to keep us down where our song is light and our, our praise is small and our hands go up this high and we don't move our feet and we don't dance and we don't shout and we don't sing and we don't praise. And there's an opposite movement by the Spirit of God today. He wants to come and He wants to break the chains off of your life. He wants to break the chains off of your thinking. He wants to break the chains off of your worship. Come on, church, lift up your hands. We're going to begin to give God glory in this place. We're going to begin to praise. Come on, lift up your voice. Jesus, we praise you. You are worthy. You are holy. You are awesome in this place. Come on, church, let your shout rise to the Lord. Let your praise rise to the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We give you glory, God. We give you glory, God. We give you glory, God. He is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our song. He is worthy of our shout. Oh, you want to break through. You want to break through in the atmosphere today. Thank you, Jesus. We give you the highest praise. You deserve it all. Isn't he worthy today, church? We give you the highest praise. You deserve it all. Come on, let it not just be words today. We give you the highest praise. For you deserve it all. You deserve it all. We give you the highest praise. You deserve it all. Let the music continue to play. Isn't he worthy? Isn't he worthy to receive our praise? Isn't he worthy? Yes, you are. Just the voices we give. We give you the highest praise. You deserve it all. You deserve it all. We give you the highest praise. You deserve it all. You deserve it all. We give you the highest. Let's give a shout of praise today. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Just my notes there, thanks. For I desire to break out among you, says the Lord, to pour out my spirit on sons and daughters. 
I want to break the chains off your life. Set you free from sin and bondage. Set you free from insecurity, says the Lord. I want to break out among you, says the Lord. And fill you with my spirit so you can carry the gospel to your neighborhood, to your workplace, to your schools. I want to break out among you, says the Lord, to set you free in your thinking, to unlock your finances, to heal your marriage, to restore your relationship with your children that you thought would never be right and whole again. I want to break out among you, says the Lord, in the times of worship, in the times of prayer, both in the times in corporate worship in church and in your time with me alone in the morning, says the Lord. I want to break out among you, says the Lord. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks, team. Appreciate you guys. I'm going to pass this off. Good morning. Have a seat. Good morning, good morning. Woo! We're going to skip the intro video. That was the intro video. Man, I'm, I'm provoked in my spirit that God wants to move in a mighty way among us today and, 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 and all the time, you know, again, as I said, I feel two forces. Uh, the devil always, the, 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 always wants to keep you contained. Uh, I don't know if you are like me and you like military history, but there's a book called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And uh, he said something like this. Uh, I'm going to butcher the phrase, but I'll, I'll give you my, my best with it. He said that the best strategy is to basically beat you, an enemy to, to beat you without ever firing a shot or ever, ever going to war. And the enemy doesn't care uh, if you are mediocre in your faith, mediocre in your walk with the Lord, uh, sort of contained. He wins if he can just keep you contained. He doesn't have to get you on crack cocaine. He doesn't have to get you to go have multiple affairs. He doesn't have to get you to go murder someone to defeat you. He he just has to neutralize you uh, as a believer. Because a person who knows who they are and who God is, a person who uh, has connected with Jesus Christ is on a path to change the world. We were at the uh, Portland Zoo a couple years ago, and usually they have the lion cage. They're pretty sedated in there. The lion's just kind of laying on his side. Meow, you know. And I don't know what happened. I think one of the days they had fed the lion red meat or something, and so he was up on this rock. Remember this, Bethany? And he roared. And I was like, that was awesome. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me in that moment and said, that is a picture of a believer. Because normally we're sedate and we go, meow. We give you the quietest praise. I just want to be blessed today. And there's something that God wants to unlock in you and, and through you to be that lion that he made you to be. To do great things and to break off those chains and to break out. I'm telling you right now, it's fun to look at a lion in a cage. Not fun if it gets loose in the zoo. And so the devil loves to keep us in the cage and even let you feel like a lion and be like a lion in church. But then when a lion gets out of the cage, it's something crazy. Uh, things just get chaotic. They get, they get wild. You know, in a world that is so broken and, and, and messed up, what would happen if just Christians would just be Christians? You mean like great Christians? No, just Christians. In the book of Acts, when the Christians would show up, they would, people would start freaking out. They literally said, the people that, cha- that, set the, that turned the world upside down have come here too. 
the, the Christians would just show up and by their presence, not their presence, but the presence of God on the inside of them, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, when they walked into the room, the atmosphere changed and shifted. Come on. When they showed up, they were so full of the spirit of God. They weren't super Christians. They were just Christians. And when Christians show up, Christ shows up and things change in the atmosphere. And so, man, I'm provoked in my heart today because I believe the Lord is wanting to speak to us as we talk about being rewired, transformed in our thinking that we are not just an intellectual church. We don't just come together, hear nice thoughts, some pop psychology with some scriptures on the screen, and then, you know, that's all, and we're blessed, and we go back, and we live just like everybody else. No. We're here to, yes, receive the truth of God. Yes, receive some principles. Yes, receive the scripture and the word. And then let the Holy Spirit of God come on the inside of us and set our hearts on fire so we go out into a very dark world and we light it up. This is what Jesus wants to do in and through us. And I believe as we move forward in 2022 that God is putting it deep in our hearts not to do something fancy, not to do something, uh, man, we're gonna come up with some great new strategy. No, we're gonna go back to the strategy that has worked, that does work, and that always will, which is when Christians will connect with Jesus Christ, will be filled with his Holy Spirit, and then will go into the world and make disciples, things will change in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Jake, we thought you were a Baptist. I'm not. I'm a charismatic. I'm, I've outed myself. It's speaking in tongues, shouting hallelujah. Come on. Let's go. We're talking about being rewired in our thinking. We're talking about God transforming us because all of life is a reflection of how we think. It says in Romans chapter 12, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God doesn't think like you. He doesn't vote like you. He doesn't root for the same team. The only thing I know about God is he's not a Husky fan. Other than that, I don't know. I don't know. But God wants to change us, and he has this plan for you, this will for you, good, pleasing, and perfect, and he, you will discover it. You will live it out. You will, you will see it in your life. Come on, you will see God's will in your life for you, for your family, for your children and your children's children as you let God change the way that you think. How does God do this? How does he transform our thinking? We've been talking about this. Number one, through discipline, study, and practice of his word. Please don't come to church and amen if you won't read your Bible on Monday. Yes, come to church and and amen, but read your Bible on Monday because God wants to transform you through his word. Number two, he transforms us, as we talked about recently, through intentional participation in Christian community. God wants to get you around other imperfect people in this crazy thing we call the church so that you can grow and be be transformed and you can help other people grow. And today we're going to talk about that God changes and transforms our thinking through a fresh revelation of who he is. And next week we'll talk about a fresh revelation of who we are in light of who God is. You know, everybody has an opinion about God. People, uh, even in the world, even people that aren't Christians, people that don't know Jesus, people that maybe believe other stuff. Everyone sort of has their thought about about God, and most people think that their conception of God, their idea of God is is fairly accurate. But then I think about, in life, all the facepalm moments. Like, other people, when when they say and do things, and and me, you know, I go, man, what were they thinking, right? We've we've shown some pictures over the weeks about what were people thinking, but I was just thinking through my life, the way people will say things, like, I knew this girl in Bible college, and she, she would say 
this, for all intensive purposes. And I'm an Enneagram one, so I'm kind of a perfectionist, and I would just do this thing where I pinch my nose and go, oh God, no. You know, I'm like grammar police. I'd be like, it's not for all intensive, it's intense and purposes. How many of you just grew in the Lord today? Right with there, you're like, oh. And then she'd be like, yeah, we're gonna go to the beach. We're gonna go to the specific ocean. Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this community that's helping me to grow, you know, my grace. I'd be like, it's not the specific, it's not the ambiguous ocean isn't the other side and the specific one here. <laughs> it's the Pacific Ocean, right? Come on, the Pacific. And then this, I love this one. People will be like, I could care less. I could care less. And I'm like, you could? So what you're saying is that, it, you, what you want to say is I couldn't care less because that would express maximum apathy towards the situation. But basically what you're saying is, um, I have cares to give. I could care less, but I don't. I actually have some care. So when somebody's like, I could care less, you're like, oh, well, that's, I'm glad to hear you care. Um, but what they meant to say was I couldn't care less, right? And then we had this wonderful thing in Bible college. Bethany and I were, were leaders of a Bible college for about nine years, and the Lord really grew us in grace and mercy and, and understanding through that time and, and helped, helped us uh, become more gracious through it. And w- one of the papers we graded I think, it, I think you were grading this paper. And the, the student, uh, God bless them, they, they wanted to say the wiles of, of Satan, but they wrote the word Satan. And so throughout their whole paper, they'd misspelled the word Satan, which is S-A-T-A-N, as S-A-T-I-N, which is Satan. And so Bethany got to grade a paper all about the wiles of Satan. <laughs> you better be watching out for that Satan, you know what I mean? A lot of bad things go down with Satan. So the wiles of Satan... Um, and then, you know, like even in the world, how people with grammar, we just make mistakes, you know, like commas. How many of you know commas matter? Can I show that first picture about commas? Um, if you don't have them in the right spot, Rachel Ray finds inspiration in cooking her family and her dog. <laughs> Boy, that was good. I'll tell you what, what's in the Sammy? You know what I'm saying? All right, next. <laughs> Attention, toilet only for disabled, elderly, pregnant children. I know we're all about pronouns and stuff, but that is weird. You know what I mean? Uh, okay, next. Commas, people. Uh, ver- visit reason. Unable to eat diarrhea. Doc, I've been struggling. You know, what's wrong with you, Jake? Well, you know, recently my diarrhea consumption has gone way down. Anyways, commas, commas. Country fried grandpa approved. <laughs> next. <laughs> Hunters, please use caution when hunting pedestrians using walk trails. (laughs) I I suppose that's what happens in Texas, right? That's what, Texas. Uh, Oklahoma, they hunt pedestrians. What are your three favorite things in the world? My favorite things are eating my grandma and my dog. (laughs) Awesome, is that the last one? Awesome, yeah. Okay, how many of you are like, yep, commas matter. Get, get those kids learning that grammar. grammar. Uh, when it comes to God, details matter. When it comes to understanding God and having the right conception of God, the idea of God, we, we need to have the right thoughts about him. You know, some of the wrong views of God that I've encountered and seen, and you've probably seen these, these as well, is that and many people will reject God based on these flawed ideas. The first one is they sort of see God as a fairy tale. He's on par with the Easter bunny, um, sorry, if there's any kids in here, close your ears. I'm going to burst some bubbles, and I apologize. Just, but like Santa Claus isn't real. You know, some of that stuff. 
But people see God as sort of a fairy tale. He's on par with uh, Easter Bunny, made up, make believe. They, they might see God number two as kind of the angry smiter, kind of that Zeus figure. He's got a big white beard and his eyes are all mad and he has lightning bolts. And if you, you know, watch the wrong show on Netflix, he's ready to just, you know, like fry you, right? Some people see God this way. Uh, another way that people see God kind of a, um, as a cosmic Santa Claus. And, and I would say this isn't, they don't always see God, you know, he just wants to give me good things. He, he never, he doesn't care. You could do whatever you want and he just, he's okay with it. He's, it's good. Um, and he's, so, he's such a pushover. He's sort of cosmic grandpa Santa Claus or like the woo-woo God. You know, if you think good thoughts, I'm going to manifest this. I'll put this out into the universe. And then cosmic Santa Claus, life force, presence, spirit, power will make some good things happen for me. Okay, so all of these things have some aspect of truth, which is why they're deceiving. How many of you know, most of the time when your kids come up and lie to you and there's no truth in what they're saying, you're like, you're lying. I know you're lying right now. This is utterly ridiculous. You know, I know the eggs didn't fall by themselves out of the refrigerator into the sink, you know, like you did it, you know, and they're like, and you can tell they're lying because there's no truth at all. What really makes a deception sort of stick and work is there's a little kernel of truth inside. So does God want to bless us? Yes, like the cosmic Santa Claus. Does God judge sin? Yes, like angry smiter, Zeus, God. Uh, is God a fairy tale? No, but is there, are, are there elements of uh, the supernatural and things that we have to understand why and how they fit into the narrative? Yes. So like there's, there's kernels, probably not in the fairy tale one, but in the other ones, there's at least kernels of truth that make these deceiving. But what happens is if somebody rejects God for the wrong reasons, in other words, they don't actually reject the right God, then they're making a tremendous mistake. It's this overconfidence in your own way of thinking that the Bible warns us about again and again and again. It's like you don't have all the information, so you can't really come to the right conclusions. One of the greatest debates ever was with a Christian professor at Oxford University, Professor John Lennox, a professor of science and mathematics at Oxford University. And another professor at Oxford University, a famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion. And these two uh, intellectual titans were debating. And Richard Dawkins, is, his favorite thing is to point out, you know, all the, the supposedly immoral things God does. Uh, where he gets his conception of morality, I don't know. But anyways, he, he's going after it. And, and, and John Lennox, in his beautiful Northern Irish winsome way, stops Richard Dawkins in the debate. And he says, Richard I don't believe in the same God you don't believe in. I don't believe in the same God you don't believe in. In other words, you have the wrong idea of God. So you're rejecting a caricature. You're rejecting a straw man. You're rejecting something that doesn't exist because you don't actually see the God of the Bible, the God who is there and is not silent, the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. I don't believe in the same God you don't believe in. These views are too shallow. They don't, they don't encapsulate, they don't do justice to who God really is. So today let's talk about who God is and get our thinking reframed, a fresh revelation of who God is. And maybe you know this stuff, maybe you don't, but either way, it's going to be a good, a good uh, time together. Number one, God is good. I think this is most of the questions I get about the, the, what I would call the hard questions have to do with someone not understanding the character of God. You see, we, we've taken this word faith. I'm a person of faith. I believe in God. And we've, we've, we've put this 
moniker, this label on it of blind faith. In other words, Christians just believe in God just because, because we just like Christian music and we just go to church and it's, it's just sort of faith and it's kind of, it's kind of in this upper story. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Um, and that's not what real faith is. The word faith in the Bible, it could actually be used this word fidelity. It's like a faithfulness or a, a, a trust in someone based on their character. Here's the deal. If you come to me and you say, well, Bethany said such and such a thing. She said, you know, get the H out of my face. And then she slapped me. I'd be like, uh, that's not my wife. She would use a different word. (laughs) (laughs) Boom roasted. Okay. So (laughs) no, my wife is precious. Like she's not gonna, she'll throw down. Don't get me wrong. But if somebody was like, yeah, Bethany was just going crazy. She was cussing someone out and I saw her slap somebody. I'd be like, that's not my wife. My wife exemplifies the character of Christ. My wife is gracious. She's, she's trustworthy. Like I, I, I know her character, so I'm not confused by this accusation. So when somebody says, well, how does God allow such and such to happen? Why does God allow bad things? What? And those aren't bad questions. But the reality is that because I know the character of God is good, I I realize there has to be an explanation that doesn't just immediately discredit God and everything having to do with the Bible. Let me just tell you something. If you've ever had your faith dismantled by one question, number one, your faith was not correctly constructed. Number two, you don't have all the information. Because it's really easy to come and be like, well, you know, here's a question. If God's good, then how does he let bad things happen? And we're like, ah! I'm totally overcome by the force of your logical arguments. No. In the same way that if someone said something about Bethany, I would go, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. That might be a good question, and I need to look into it, but I don't lose complete faith in this person that I've chosen to spend my life with because I understand her character and nature. So therefore, it's important for us to understand, number one, that God is good. It says in Psalms 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for those who fear him will have all they need. This word fear here is talking about reverence and respect, a healthy weight of, of understanding who he is. It says even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Biblical faith is not blind. Biblical faith is not blind. Biblical faith is not made believe, make believe. Biblical faith is not throw away the evidence and don't read books about science and go, no, 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 when somebody asks you a hard question. Biblical faith is taste and see. Taste and see the character, the nature, the truth, the reality, the presence of God. And so the, the biblical authors understand this. They never are presenting this. This is just some kind of silly thing we started to believe in the last 150 years in Western Christianity that there is sort of faith is sort of in this upper story. And and that's not the case. So taste and see, it's not blind. So what is taste? Taste is experience that you should perceive. You should take a bite. One of the things that I love is Bethany will come in and she'll be like, hey, I found this recipe. It's, you know, half-baked harvest or whatever. And she'll be like, does that look good? I'll be like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and she's showing it. I'm like, do you want to make that tonight? Yes, I do, you know. And, uh, and And I get to perceive and taste and experience these wonderful things. A relationship with God is meant to be experienced. One of the problems why, why people, their Christian faith gets really dead is that they, they move it to one category or the other. Well, I'm purely experiential. No, 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 you need to also see, and we'll talk about that in a second. Or they're purely in the see category. 
They, they intellectually agree with the ideology of Christianity, but they have not experienced it for themselves. I told Bethany this week, there was a, a story that was very encouraging to me about this lady who is beginning to experience, I think she was kind of sharing some of that, beginning to experience God. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've been so deep into sea that I'm forgetting to taste. God, I don't want to just know about you. I want to know you. I want to know that you're good. I want to taste. You, you can't just describe it. If somebody said, well, just, you know, prove to me and, and explain to me and make me understand fully what it is to be a Christian. Well, no, I, I can show you, but you need to experience it too. You, you need to feel the presence of God. You need to understand his miracle power. You need to understand the love and grace that he has for you in your deepest, darkest moments because it's a taste and see kind of a thing. How do we experience God? We experience him through the scriptures. We experience him in prayer. We experience him in worship. We experience him as we serve. We experience him in the, the context of community. We experience God as we share our faith and we go into all the world. Jesus said these signs will follow as you go into the world, as you're going to make disciples and you're saying, God, I'm walking in faith, trusting you. You've sent me on this mission. I'm out in the world doing what you've called me to do and you're gonna experience God in these things. Many people would say outwardly, I want to experience God, pastor. Yes, I, I do, but you don't. And I'll tell you why. Because it's only on your terms. It's interesting because in any kind of domestic relationship, we always face up to our own selfishness, don't we? And oftentimes what we'll find is that we are willing to help in the way that I want to help. I'm willing to serve in the way that I want to serve. You know, hey, we need somebody to help in the nursery. Well, that's not my ministry. Well, I don't think Jesus was specifically like all about putting his naked back against a wooden cross and getting nailed to it. I think there was something called sacrificial love that says, actually, you're more divine when you do the things you aren't called to do. Man, I'm preaching good today. I'm just going to tell you right now. I, I mean, I'm not confused about it. When you will actually step out of your comfort zone is when you grow in those places. And I think we say, I want to experience God, but no, we actually only want to experience God according to the way that we are supposed to experience God, that we want to experience God. Pastor, why were you, why were you speaking in tongues? Well, that's weird. It's totally weird. It's weird to me too. I don't even like it. When I'm like in my car, sometimes I'll be like secret Pentecostal. Trying to be a ventriloquist. So I don't even want people in the other cars to see that I'm speaking in tongues. You're like, that's so weird. It is weird. It's totally supernatural. It's outside of the way that I want to experience God. And yet God said, this is how I want you to experience me. We're going to talk about this over the summer. The nine forms of worship that we see biblically. Dancing. Do you know I don't like to dance? You guys are like, well, your moves, we think you would like to. You got moves like Jagger. I'm like, I know. But... It's just, you know, it's private. I, I don't like to dance, and yet the Bible says that we dance for the Lord. We, we dance. We're like, what, dance? Yeah. Well, that's not my ministry. Well, that's how God likes to be worshipped. It says lift your hands. It says sing. It says speak. It says shout. It says all this kind of stuff. And you know what? Well, I don't want to experience God that way. Yeah, you don't really want to experience God. You have a God that you've made. You know what, what a God that you've made is called? It's called an idol. But the God of the Bible that wants to transform your thinking and wants to transform your life and has a good and perfect and pleasing will for you and your family wants you to experience him 
how he wants to be experienced. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the children, the Pevensey children, Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter, they're, talk, they're talking to him about Aslan, and they're with the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in the story, if, you're, if you know the story. And they start talking about Aslan. He's the great king. He's the son of the emperor across the sea. And they, they find out that Aslan is a lion, a great lion. And the children ask a very logical question. They say, oh, he's a lion? Is he quite tame? Is he quite safe? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You know, you don't want a king who's safe. You want a king who's dangerous. Because when the wolf is at your door, you don't want a wuss. You want the king. You want the lion of the tribe of Judah. Come on, somebody. So no, God is not safe. No, God will absolutely wreck your agenda. No, God will destroy your ego. No, God will take your finances. God will send you to the mission field. God will bring you down low and humble you. God will get you to do uncomfortable things, like get up on front of a stage and talk to people. Oh, it's not my ministry. He's not safe, but he's good. God will, will, will take you, he'll break you, he will wreck you, and he will fulfill you, and you will go on the adventure of a lifetime with your king. But he's not safe. Taste it. Taste and see. He's good. Is he, is he safe? No. Does he agree with your politics? No. Is he going to leave you perfectly comfortable in your life? No. But he's good. Taste and see. See means to observe, to look upon, to take not a passing glance, but to look deeply into the reality of God. God is not afraid of your questions. God is not afraid of your deepest doubts. God is not afraid of your insecurities. He can stand the test of your scrutiny. It's fascinating to me because for thousands of years, those that wanted to discredit the Christian faith have attempted to pull apart and pick apart and challenge and mess up the biblical narrative. And, oh, it's not historical. Oh, it's not, the miracles aren't possible. Da, 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 da. They try to discredit, oh, these, these stories are mythical. They're fables and all this kind of stuff. And the problem is, as we look deeper and deeper into it, we just keep finding older and older manuscripts from the people that were there, eyewitnesses. Every time that the, the scientific community that wants to come against the veracity and the truth of the Christian faith, that they, they invent new tests for this truth, they end up messing themselves up and falling into their own trap because all of a sudden they'll find out, well, I guess there really is this piece of the archaeological record here. Oops, now we've got to invent a new way to try to discredit it. And the reality is that God is not afraid of our doubts. You can literally spend a lifetime pursuing and looking into uh, the reality of the Christian faith, the historicity of the Christian faith, the philosophical cogency and coherence of the Christian faith, and you aren't going to break it. It will break you. You will come to a place where you look into this mirror and you realize, dang it, this describes the world I live in and the person I am in the midst of this place. And I am called now to change and lay my life down for this king who is not safe, but is good. God invites us to seek, to see, to look into it's one of the reasons I love the study of what's called apologetics. It's the defense or the understanding of the gospel. First, in the book of Peter, he says, um, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. Because I don't, I'm not a Christian because I prefer it. I'm a Christian because I've experienced, I've tasted God. Because I've studied the evidence for the faith. And because I've compared it in examination with other faiths and isms and osophies and all these kinds of things and found them wanting Taste and see, God is good. Number two, God is faithful. 
as you begin to lean into the reality of God's goodness, you'll, you'll begin to experience his faithfulness. You know, we live in a world of fake news, of lies. Feels like there's nobody you can trust. You know, none of the institutions that we've trusted in have proven themselves faithful. But God is faithful. Deuteronomy 32 says, He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. Psalm 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. In the NLT, it says, for the word of the Lord holds true, and we can trust everything he does. God is faithful. This word faithful, watch this, he means full of faith. You like that? <laughs> but how does that, it doesn't make sense. How does God, if, if we look at faith in the way we normally think about the word faith, as sort of belief, is God full of belief? Maybe but actually what this is talking about is, again, going back to that term fidelity, a covenant relationship, a faithful relationship between two parties. God is so full of his faithfulness to you that it literally says in the scripture, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny who he is. God, when he makes an agreement with you, is so full of fidelity and his love and his, the Bible talks about this in so many different rich, incredible ways that he can't, he, it would be breaking his character and his nature to break his covenant, to break his promise to you. He's full of faith, full of fidelity. In a world where people are lacking integrity and fidelity and lacking character and lacking trustworthiness, God is overflowing with it. He's overflowing in his faithfulness to forgive us. First John 1 says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. The next time the enemy comes to you and says, you're a sinner, you're, 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 you're just bad, you're, eh, you're ugly, you're the only person who struggles with this. You know what you can say? Hold on a second, devil. Hold on a second, my own flesh that's trying to condemn me on the inside, the inner critic. Hold on one second. I believe in a God who is good and a God who is faithful, who sent his son to die on a cross for my sins, who wrote the check and paid the bill in full. And it says if I'll confess my sin to him, that he's faithful and just to forgive my sins. So hold on a second. What are you trying to hold me accountable to here? Are you trying to get me to pay a bill that Jesus already paid? Get out of my way, Satan. I'm going to walk in victory today. Come on, that's setting somebody free today. I'm not going to live under shame. I'm not going to live under condemnation. I'm not going to live under the, the boot of Satan. He's meant to live under my boot. As it says in the scripture. Why? Because you're so awesome? Because you're so perfect? Because you never make mistakes? No. Because even if you are unfaithful, he is faithful to do all that he said he would do. His blood never fails. The blood of Jesus never fails you. There's an old song by Delirious, a band called Delirious, and it said, Jesus' blood never fails me. Jesus' blood never fails me. When the devil comes to bring condemnation and shame and try to remind you of who you were, you bring the blood of Jesus and you say, paid in full, this is who I am because God is faithful. God, number three, is a loving father. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, he says, start this way, our Father in heaven. God is not just this big, scary, distant, cosmic entity. He's personal God. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, the God who is there and who is not silent. He speaks. He's with us. He's Emmanuel, God with us, a personal God, and he loves you desperately as his own child. As it says in the book of Romans, we've been adopted. We are heirs of 
Abraham. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We've been brought into the family of God. Romans 8, 15, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. If you're living as a fearful slave in the Christian family of God, you missed the biggest point of this whole thing. That you were saved by grace and you've been given full refrigerator rights. Sit your rear end down at the table and enjoy what your daddy made for you. Come on. You put a meal of grace and goodness on the table and you're sitting out there trying to serve your way into God's good graces and you can't do it. You never could. So just get comfortable with the fact that you are a redeemed sinner, but now you're a saint and you're brought into the family of God. You're not a fearful slave. It says, instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba or Papa, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Maybe your earthly father failed you. Maybe your earthly father wasn't there. Maybe your earthly father was abusive. And so for you, this conception of God as father is uncomfortable. I want to encourage you to embrace the discomfort of your paradigm and let it be shifted and recognize that the the father, his grace, his goodness is for you. He's adopted you. We don't need God as mama. We need God as father because that's how he revealed. That, That is how he revealed. Well, does that mean fathers are better than mothers? No. God encompasses all the aspects of the paternal and the maternal. I don't have time to go into all of that. But as a society, we've got so insane and ludicrous because fathers have been so broken and failed and been failed by society in a lot of ways and brought low with with some of the nonsense that's gone on that we've basically uh, broken the whole idea of fatherhood and God wants to reveal himself as this perfect loving father because there's a grace inside of there that will actually cause you to change. There's a grace in there that will transform your thinking. There's a grace in there for you That God, is he safe? No, but is he good? Yes. Will he discipline you? Yes. But does that mean he will protect you when the enemy comes for you? Yes. Let me just tell you right now, my kids, they don't see their dad as some kind of wuss who wouldn't protect them. The other day, Evie saw this show and and somebody hurt this this girl in the show and she's like, dad, if you saw that guy, she was like, I couldn't even utter it. And I'm like, that's right. Which way to the gun show to that way, you know? Because my kids know that dad might be kind of grumpy and scary sometimes, you know, like, on my face, I'm trying to drink my coffee, you know, whatever. I have weird hair coming out of my ears and my nose. Like, there's some weird stuff about father, you know? It's kind of like, man, he's kind of weird and grumpy. But they also recognize that deep love that I would lay my life down. And if you, you can't receive God as a loving father, you're missing out on this whole piece. Last... Uh, I'm not going to have time for this, but number four, God is who he says he is. I want to encourage you to read Exodus 34. The name of God, God reveals himself. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Again, if you, if you don't see God as this, you're missing something. You're missing it. Uh, he, he, he lavishes unfailing love to a thousand generations, forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but does not excuse the guilty. God doesn't abandon truth. He doesn't abandon righteousness and justice. So mercy and grace doesn't mean God ignores sin. It means he deals with it. In the person of Christ, he brought justice and judgment upon all sin, but God will also judge all unrepentant sinners. God is not your homeboy. Jesus isn't your homeboy. Jesus is coming back on uh, the white horse with fire in his eyes. Um, 
So the, the, the God is not just sort of like passively weak and all sin is okay. And when somebody rapes and murders and destroys and goes on a shooting spree or whatever, he's just sort of, oh, that's so sad. Oh. No, it breaks his heart and he will judge that sin. It's judged in the person of Christ when Jesus died for all sin. But if a person doesn't receive what Christ did, then they will get to bear the weight of that. And God will not hold back because he will also be just. And as you read through this, this whole passage, it, it talks about who God is says that he does not excuse the guilty, lays the sins of the parents upon the children and the grandchildren, even children of the third and fourth generations. I don't have time to go into this. It doesn't mean exactly like what it sounds like in English. What's actually being compared here is the fact that God's love is for a thousand generations. The effects of sin affect your family, but God has enough mercy to try to even stop it, even if your family's not stopping it after three or four generations. So if God's faithfulness goes for a thousand and the other side is three or four, what it's showing is in the weight of God's character, his ultimate nature is mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. But he doesn't ignore sin. Last, not least, who God is, number five, is that God's perfect love is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his, his son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me today? If you're here in this place and you say, Pastor Jake, I, I wanna put my faith in this God not the God of the caricature of culture, not the God, the, the woo-woo fairy tale Santa Claus God, not, not the, maybe the disapproving God of my dead religion, but I wanna put my faith in the living God. I wanna put my faith in the lion of Judah, not safe, but good. I wanna taste and see. The opportunity is before you today to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and come back into relationship with your Father God. If that's you today, would you raise your hand so I can see? Pastor, I want to put my faith in Him. I want to trust Him as my Savior. Awesome. We're going to pray this prayer together. If that's you, just pray this after me. We're all going to pray it together. Dear Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for your grace and mercy. I give you my life and I receive you today as my Lord and Savior.